one of the things that you mentioned that really, really resonates with my story is that burnout because lots of people say that like, you know, as people of color or as women, you have to work twice as hard to make it half as far as your counterparts. And that's been so true of my entire story. That's something that my parents drilled for me throughout my entire upbringing. And I really took that to heart. And so throughout the entire experience of running my business, I've always pushed and pushed and pushed. And I really have reached burnout after burnout after burnout. And so figuring out how hard to push myself so that I can be able to reach those ambitions, but also to not, you know, cut this thing off at the legs, you know, before it can even get going has been so challenging for me because I do find it to be true where there is not as much grace as there might be for somebody who looks differently than me. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Tell All podcast, where aspiring entrepreneurs come to hear the inspirational and motivational stories of those who've come before them. I'm your host, James Makuto. Welcome to the show. Today's guest is Tosin Odubemi, a visual brand designer who, through her resolute desire to add beauty to the world, started a design uh, studio called Atelier Olua Tosin, uh, which creates bespoke, timeless brand designs for purpose-driven creatives and business owners. Tosin graduated from the University of British Columbia in Canada with an undergraduate degree in environmental design, and she's currently pursuing her graduate degree in architecture at Harvard's Graduate School of Design. Welcome to the show, Tosin. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. So um, you are a brand branding person, right? You create sophisticated brands. Um, but before we get into that, um, you know, you have a very colorful background in terms of where and how you grew up. Um, you know, you've also described prominence as having been your reality growing up. Could you please walk me through, you know, that your precursor years and what life was like before you got to where you are today, please? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I always refer to myself as a third culture kid. And, you know, I think a lot of people are familiar with that term. But if you're not, it just kind of means that you're a person from many places. Mm -hmm. And that's very true of me. I am culturally Nigerian. Um, that's where my heritage is and that's where my parents were born and everything but i was born myself in south africa and at like about the age of one i was plucked out of south africa and brought all the way to canada and that's where most of my childhood was and so my life in canada was like i was definitely different from my surroundings think about like white snowy farm fields white people just like white on white and on white and in the midst of all of that there's this little brown girl and that was me and so i was a visible minority i've always just looked different and i've also felt different than my peers and yeah. outsiders i reacted in the way that most children would and i tried to be the same i wanted to assimilate and i didn't like being different but I found that there was a little bit of uh, incongruence because when I was out and about, I would be trying to act the same as my peers, which was not really working out for me. And then I would come home and my parents would be like, nope, you are not like your friends. You need to act in the way that we want you to act. And there's different rules and things like that in this household. And so there was a lot of back and forth seesawing and frustration and just like cultural sure. identity that I was going through. But I think after a while, like somewhere in my teens, I kind of gave up on blending in. I realized that not only um, do I look different and have a different culture than my friends, but I also have all these like special traits and I'm an artist and I'm a creative. And in this world, being odd is actually celebrated. And so I started to lean into that. And I think that that's when I truly became a creative. Do you think um, your life would have been different today had your parents not had that structure in place and, and sort of kept you, uh, for lack of a better word, almost sheltered? Do you think things would have gone differently for you had you sort of had the, the, the freedom to explore and, and do all the things that your peers were doing? That's a really great question. And I think absolutely. I always say that the the strictness of my family and just like the pragmatism that that brought to me coupled with like love and gentleness, of course, is what brought me to where I am. And sure. 
I think that, you know, there's almost like a spectrum between like completely artistic and completely whimsical and ephemeral all the way to completely pragmatic. And if like maybe sculptors or painters are all the way on the side of whimsy, you know, some of them. And if like an engineer, for example, is all the way on the side of pragmatism, Mm -hmm. I really live at that intersection. Both of the things I do um, when it comes to spatial design and architecture, or even when it comes to branding, it starts to blend these two worlds of pragmatism, branding being like artistry and graphic design mixed with business acumen or architecture being, you know, spatial design and kind of sculpting to an extent on a very large scale mixed with things like physics and science and engineering. And so I really do attribute that strictness to how academic I am till date, how analytical I am till date, and like even just my ability to achieve some of the things I did, become an entrepreneur and things like that to the strictness and discipline I learned in my household. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely something a lot of people can relate to, especially Mm -hmm. immigrants, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, culturally, if you look at... um, you know, folks from, from Africa, for example, um, there is a certain, it's a different culture, right? It's mm-hmm. a different upbringing. And, and I think when folks move to different countries, um, you know, there's, there's a sense of wanting to protect your children from what's out there, right? And also staying within the parameters of your culture. Um, so, you know, that's definitely something that resonates. And I think, um, you know, in those moments, we're frustrated, Mm-hmm. <laughs> um it's it's annoying but you know in retrospect i think you kind of look when you can kind of look back you see okay there was definitely method to the madness so um great uh so the onset of 2020 is when you launched your design firm mm-hmm. um and you've since added you know a multitude of renowned clients to your resume um how did you arrive at that decision to start your own company is it is it something that you've always wanted to do or was it more happenstance? Like, how did you know you had a winning business idea? Hmm. I would say that I would live more in the realm of happenstance to the okay. extent that a business can be built on happenstance. Um, there's definitely some serendipitous moments that mm-hmm. brought me to where I am, but there was a moment where it pivoted and became really intentional. So yes, in 2020, we all know that that was like a year (laughs) for our world. I don't think anybody was spared from the drama. Um, (laughs) And so, you know, I myself, I was on a one-way track to becoming an architect. I was absolutely tunnel vision there. You know, one of those remnants from my childhood where I felt like an artist, but also it would have never flown with my parents to choose a career that, you know, wasn't architect doctor, engineer, you know, one of those pre-approved careers. (laughs) And so, and so architecture was kind of like where I could um, bridge that gap between my personal passions and what I felt my family would approve from, um, what I felt my family would approve of and what I myself would feel quote unquote successful doing. And so I had, you know, at this point, I had already finished my undergraduate degree and I had already been accepted into Harvard for grad school to study architecture. And, you know, I was doing the things that most people who are on that track would do. I had an internship lined up at a firm and I planned to, you know, in the nights and weekends, continue working in my restaurant job and serving. And that was how I was going to save up some money so that when I got to Boston, I wasn't so, so broke. (laughs) And of course, the whole world shut down. I, my restaurant closed. And so, you know, we all got laid off except for like, I think like five people who were running takeout. And I lost the internship as well, because the firm that I was working at, um, that I had worked at the summer before was like, you know, we don't really know what's happening. We don't know if our projects are going to come through. And so we don't know if we can afford to bring on new people. And so they said, no to this internship. And I was kind of like, okay, like now what am I going to do with myself? And so out of necessity was my, so kind of born out of necessity is where my business came to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this was kind of like a weird time where I was like, you know, I could just sit at home. Like I had moved back in with my parents and I was like, I'll just be here for some time. I figured it'd be better to quarantine in their house than like some apartment in the big city. Sure. And I could just be collecting like these stimulus checks that the Canadian government was hanging, handing out. But I was like, okay, let me see if I can figure out a way to make a little bit of money with the skills that I already have. 
And so at this time, I already had the hard skills that it took to be a brand designer. I already knew how to use the entire Adobe Creative Suite, like Illustrator and Photoshop and things like that, learn from architecture school. And so mm -hmm. it was just a matter of understanding the business side a little bit. And at the beginning, I really didn't claim to anyway. I was just like, hey, if you want a logo design and you already have like a strong idea of what you're going for, I can execute that for you. And so that's how it really all started. And then it built from there. Interesting. So mm -hmm. were you almost doing freelance work? Is that is that sort of where you started? Or did you start, you know, going for major clients right, right at the, the onset? It, I started out purely freelance. And I just started out with like, uploading to Instagram, my Instagram stories. And so it really okay. started close with like friends of friends and just people in my community and things like that. I was like, hey, I can do a logo. And so it started teeny tiny, like small businesses, solopreneurs, people who are just at the outset who had like little, little tiny budgets. And that's who I was serving at first. And I slowly ramped up into having bigger clients and bigger projects. That's interesting. It's almost like you're an accidental entrepreneur, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah. So now that now that you have an established business, you know, what would you say is the foremost problem that your design studio is trying to solve for your clients? Mm, that's a really great question, too. I would say that at the core of it, we are trying to tell stories beautifully. So mm -hmm. I always say that stories that are not told beautifully fall on deaf ears. And I think that there's a lot of missing pieces and a lot of people's brands um, or even just like how they're trying to communicate where people are trying to force things out and they're not speaking eloquently or, you know, they have really important messages that they're trying to send or really smart ideas. But because it doesn't look put together on the surface, because the human species as one that like we judge things quickly off of appearances and now that I understand like psychology and things like that I totally get why we do that because it would be such a waste of time for us to critically analyze everything and so our brains have developed all these tools and things to protect us to help us be able to navigate through life quickly and so yeah. we make decisions so quickly it takes like milliseconds before people make judgments about people and brands and just anything that they're seeing. And so mm -hmm. if we can't make it past that initial hump, that initial barrier, then people are not going to listen to what you're saying. And so my goal is always to make sure that on the outside, everything resonates and everything speaks the same language as I can like see people trying to speak on the inside, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're almost a translator from between, you know, what a particular client might want, the message that they're trying to to put out to the, let's just say the market, mm -hmm. um, so that it resonates with whoever their target audience is, right? Yes. Um, that's interesting. So, you know, we just talked about the pandemic and how you established a business um, almost out of necessity because, you know, you were laid off from, uh, from your restaurant job. Um, if I can switch the context a little bit to you being a young black woman in business, right? Mm -hmm. um, I read somewhere that, you know, the four most common challenges facing black women entrepreneurs are things like access to capital, mm -hmm. you know, uh, prejudice from uh, conventional, conventional lenders, uh, mm -hmm. let's call it systemic bias, a lack of support in the form of mentorship, and just burnout, right? Mm -hmm. Um, do any of these resonate with you or are there perhaps, you know, other apropos challenges that you've had to come face to face with, um, not necessarily in the context of, of starting your business, but in running your business? Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I think all of those <laughs> have definitely okay. affected me in some way. Um, I will say that I am blessed in that the field that I'm in, capital is not as much of an issue because okay. it doesn't take too, too much to run my business, right? So it's not like I have a product or something where it's like you need that initial, like just like a really good amount of capital to get it started. At first, it really was just me and my laptop and I was able to scale my expenses you know, like proportionally with mm -hmm. the amount of revenue we we're making, which was strategic on my end. By that time, I was like really doing the math and calculating and things like that. But I'm able to do that. Some people don't have that blessing. But, you know, now that I'm a little bit bigger, that's when those things come in where I'm like, okay, you really do hit a peak when you're on your own before 
you're able to, you know, like just scale bigger and make some of the things happen that you'd want to happen, mm -hmm. but there's so little opportunities out there. Um, but I will say that like one of the things that you mentioned that really, really resonates with my story is that burnout because yeah. lots of people say that like, you know, as people of color or as women, you have to work twice as hard to make it half as far as your counterparts. Right. And that's been so true of my entire story. That's something that my parents drilled for me throughout my entire upbringing. And I really took that to heart. And so throughout the entire experience of running my business, I've always pushed and pushed and pushed. And I really have reached burnout after burnout after burnout. And so figuring out, you know, how hard to push myself um, mm -hmm. so that I can be able to reach those ambitions, but also to not, you know, cut this thing off at the legs, you know, before it can even get going has been so challenging for me because I do find it to be true where there is not as much grace as there might be for somebody who looks differently than me. How have you kept motivated and inspired to keep going mm -hmm. and sort of in light of these headwinds? So, you know, how do you manage that burnout? For me, it's a lot of like, honestly, just pure stubbornness is part of it where it's like, I just do not want to fail at this for any reason other than like I tried everything and it's just not meant for me. And so if it's just like, well, I just quit and gave up, like that is just not an option for me because there's too many people probably sitting there thinking she, there's no way that she can do this for me to like let them have that win, <laughs> you know? Again, like if it's not meant for me or if I decide to pivot one day because there's something I'm more passionate about, I give myself that freedom. But mm -hmm. as I am now, so long as I stay driven in this path like I don't think that there's anything that could ever stop me and something that really motivates me is like whenever um, I am able to meet somebody who looks up to me and so I have so many women on Instagram who follow me who are like maybe five years younger than me like these I say little black girls they're not that little they're like mm -hmm. in their 20s some of them <laughs> but in my eyes little black girls who are like in college and stuff like that and they message me and they're like what you're doing is what i want to do or not right. even black girls like sometimes they're you know like just like a lot of women some men as well who follow me and they look up to me and i'm like oh my gosh like i'm doing this for you because i have those people who i look up to who are a few steps ahead of me and i'm thinking like what would i do if they quit because they were burnt out or what would I do if they quit because there was too many odds stacked against them that mm -hmm. would like discourage me so much. And so yeah. it's so motivating to be able to see that like, okay, I'm really inspiring the next generation of people coming after me with what I'm doing. No, that's great. It's almost like you feel responsible for them, right? Like mm -hmm. almost that they're also holding you accountable to what it is that you're doing. Yes. Um, and I think, you know, to your point, you know, there's also something to be said about just the grit and hard work that's required to start and run a business, right? Mm -hmm. And even just having the vision, um, because not everyone's going to see your vision or mm -hmm. understand it. And whether subconsciously or otherwise, you know, people will kind of get in your way and, and try to dissuade you from pursuing, you know, what it is that you're chasing. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, you know, having people that look up to you, I think is great motivation, mm -hmm. um, you know, to keep going, right? Because mm -hmm. you're impacting their lives. And, and I think even beyond just the money aspect of it, like just mm -hmm. that in and of itself is, is, is a great feeling. Mm -hmm. um, so growing a business, right? We'll stick with the topic of growing a business. Um, it's certainly a labor, labor of love, and, and I would argue, you know, like you've just explained, it's, it's, there's a lot of sweat equity that has to go into it. Mm -hmm. um, you're now in year number three, mm -hmm. uh, the third year, three and a half years old, if my math is correct. Yeah. Um, again, like we said, you've established a pretty formidable portfolio of clients. Mm -hmm. um, but who was that first client, that first notable client uh, that you had that was, uh, let's call it a breakthrough client? And how were you able to secure their business and get them to sign on the dotted line and ultimately pay you? Yeah, yeah. I think that my first, yeah, my first client who really gave me a chance was CBC. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure. I'll ask you, do people from the U.S. know about CBC or is this like a very Canadian thing? <laughs> I know CBC because I, okay. I lived in I lived in Canada for a little okay. bit. So the Canadian yeah. Broadcasting Corporation. Um, yes. But I don't I don't know if that's if that's something that's widely known here in the States. Yeah. And I don't really know what the U.S. like equivalent of it would be. But I mean, it's a government wide broadcasting 
service and you know mm-hmm. they have lots of little branches under them but it's a government client and they're huge they're massive and I think that they were the first people who gave me an opportunity. There was somebody who was working with them and he was doing this entire story piece or he was part of a group of people. It was this whole network of people who were doing a story piece on um, like black people in the West and in particularly in the prairies. And it was called black in the prairies. And mm-hmm. I guess I was noticed probably on Instagram, because like I said, at this time I was posting pretty aggressively <laughs> and sharing what I was doing. And at this time as well, like there was a lot of shift happening in the social space. And so this was the time where people were really trying to platform black voices. And so I was being noticed. And so I'm sure that, you know, I probably came across the feed of somebody and they ended up interviewing me for black on the prairies. And I did some work there. I did this like cool graphic design piece. And they also saw one of my projects that I had done years prior. And it was a social justice project called labels and, you know, there's like it's you know if you google my name i'm pretty sure it comes up but there's like people of color and on their backs i had photoshopped on nutrition labels and i had changed the like words the ingredients and things like that to different prejudices and like you know Mm. so yeah it was like an interesting just like a thought-provoking piece where it was like you know for example black people and it might be like 98 percent aggression and you know just like little stereotypes that are harmful like that and by doing that what I had done is like, you know, it feels uncomfortable because we know that people are not food and we cannot break them down into like these nutrition labels like we can. But mm-hmm. by objectifying the people on purposely, I was creating like a intentionally uncomfortable graphic to have people thinking. And I had done this sure. back in 2016. Um, and the piece just like, it was great then, but it, you know, I reposted it in 2020 because I was like, you know, this is still relevant. And the CBC really liked it. And so they licensed it from me and they're like, hey, can we post this on our stuff? And I was like, yeah, sure. And I think that from there, that's when things really started to take off because I started being noticed. And so then, you know, that's the thing when you have that one breakthrough client, I'm sure everyone knows is that when you've worked with the CBC, then all of a sudden the University of Calgary starts to think that like, hey, maybe this person's on our level. And then when you work with the University of Calgary, then Harvard's willing to hire you, you know? And so it kind of came from there. Yeah. So has it, so today, has it, have you sort of relied on that snowball effect of, of, um, you know, all the, the clients that you've worked with in the past, or do you, do you actively market your business? So for example, like you said, you started off in social with social media posting on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, are you actively, um, marketing for marketing your business or is it, is it really just businesses and companies approaching you having looked at your portfolio of work? Hmm. I do actively market, but that being said, I use a lot of poll marketing. And so mm-hmm. I do post, I'm very active on social media across the board. And okay. for anybody out there who's like, you know, trying to do similar things, I think that personal branding is really key, right? And so sometimes we can look at like these giant businesses and things like that and think, well, you know, Coca-Cola CEO, nobody knows what they look like. And so like, why can't I be this faceless, nameless thing? And I agree. I feel that sometimes I'm like, oh, like, why? must I keep showing up but it's just so difficult to break through nowadays because there's so many different businesses going on and there's so many people who are offering this probably a similar thing to you especially if you're like a service-based business like me there's millions of designers up there probably lots of them who are just as good as me if not better right and so when it really comes down to it it's back to that no like and trust factor where it's like if you can connect with people on a personal level then they're just going to be rooting for you and wanting to hire your business so most of the marketing i do is to do with personal branding so yes posting on instagram posting on youtube posting on i don't know linkedin things like that and then for our actual business we kind of just use our platforms as a portfolio and so you know we'll just like where we kind of gave up on the whole like trying to grow and trying to like push ads or anything like that because we didn't see it working like Mm -hmm. it wasn't effective for us and so we're like okay like let's just have these platforms as a home so that if somebody does search us up on instagram or linkedin like 
it's there, it's active, they can see our work. And we also use them to share like some different things, like maybe, yeah, interviews or thoughts about like marketing and business and psychology, things that like can't really live on a portfolio as easily and just helping educate our audience and our client base and show that we know how to do those things. And we know how to think this way and talk this way. Um, but most of like the bringing people in and getting that awareness piece is through my socials, um, my personal branding, and I'm sure the personal branding and socials of my team members as well. So people do reach out to us. We don't outbound reach out to other people. That's a great place to be, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think there's there's definitely something to be said about just that organic Mm -hmm. um, sort of what you mentioned about getting clients to know like and trust you mm-hmm. but having it organically unfold is mm-hmm. is is worth more than gold in my opinion mm-hmm. um so in sticking with clients could you maybe walk me through a bird's eye view of what your client engagement roadmap looks like so for example from inception or let's call it the initial consultation to the final project delivery what does what does that look like sort of at a high level yeah yeah so usually like i said people you know might reach out to us over email or dm or something be like hey we have this type of project would you be interested? And mm-hmm. the first thing we do is try to get on a call with them as soon as possible because we are not afraid to point people to our competitors if we don't think that we're the best person for that project. Yeah, we, in a similar way as like, if you go to a doctor and you think like, my leg hurts, I kind of think that I might've twisted my ankle. They're not gonna take your word for it. We really see ourselves as experts and we're like, we will diagnose whether a logo is really what you need or if your business problems could be better solved by something else. We refuse to like, just take your money and then deliver something to you that's not gonna drive the results that you want. And so the first thing we do is we hop on a call. It's usually like 30 to 45 minutes and we mm-hmm. ask them questions that have little to do with the deliverable that they asked for and a lot to do about like where their business is at and what their goals are. And then from there, we'll try to diagnose. We usually try to figure out again, whether we can help them, whether the budget is in alignment with what we would, you know, request for this type of project and things like that. And we essentially will try to, for lack of a better terms, like close that sale before we even get off the call. Because if you're creative, you know that writing proposals is a lengthy process. It can take hours on hours on hours. And when you start getting reached out to as often as we have been getting reached out to over the past couple of years, like you could really spend all day every day writing proposals for people who are just kicking a bucket down a road. And so we pretty much ask the clients to like make a decision right there and then and we're only writing proposals for people who have you know, like who have great intention to get this done and they're like ready to go. And so once we get to that point, we'll send them over a proposal and that's when we start the project. And so, you know, we do all the logistical stuff, sign contracts, get deposits, things like that. And we have like a few step thing. And so usually we start out in like a discovery research phase where we will be asking lots of questions. We might, depending on the size of the business, we might be interviewing customers. We might be interviewing staff and things like that to find out where that incongruence is between how people people are perceiving the business and how they mm-hmm. would like to be perceived. And that's the question that we're going to, that's a question mark that we want to turn into an explanation point <laughs> through the branding process. And so in order to find where the differences is, we just talk to a lot of people, we study, sometimes we do like social learning through looking at things like Instagram comments and Reddit threads and reviews and things like that to see what people are really saying about the business. If it's a small, tiny business that's just getting started, this step might be short. It might just be a one hour interview with the founder. And then we go into discovery. And so that's when we start the mood boarding and visual exercises to make sure that the visual world we're building in our heads over at the studio is in alignment with what the founder expects. And it's like, okay, yeah, like this feeling that we're going for is good before we start knocking out real deliverables. Then once we go from that exploration and discovery phase, that's when we usually start to execute. And so the order of things that we get done is different every single time, depending on the project deliverables. But that's when we knock out, you know, just like the logos and the websites and the collateral and things like that. While that process is fluid, you definitely do have, I guess, systems and processes in place, right, Mm -hmm. to to kind of guide that that journey. Mm -hmm. Um, In thinking about great brands what would you say are the key ingredients to putting together a great brand Hmm. i think the key ingredients are knowing who you're talking to and being Mm -hmm. really clear on how you would like to 
make them feel when they interact with your brand and then executing that really well. So when we think about the greats, I think we all think about like Apple and Nike and things like that. And that is for a reason. I know they're kind of basic examples, but they have really earned that spot in all of our brains. Because when we think about Nike, Nike knows who they're talking to and they know that they want us all to feel empowered and motivated. And so everything from their copywriting to their visuals to like, even just like the sounds they use, like everything from start to finish is like rooted towards that message. And they're huge now. And I think that the reason that their brand has been so successful and why they're always known as like, okay, like Nike, boom, just do it. Like we all know that is because they like know who they're talking to. They know how they like us to make, like to make us feel. And on every single touch point, they execute. They never let anything just be like, oh, like we chose pink because we like the color pink or just like this is what we're doing every single decision is intentional so you know i was i was looking at um at your project pricing right and <laughs> and i'd be lying if i said my eyes didn't sort of widen uh because because working with you is is not cheap but i also think that it speaks to the caliber of clients that you work with um, as well as the quality of the work that you deliver to those clients right mm -hmm. so for example you offer you know elementary uh visual brand excuse me, brand identity design mm -hmm. that starts at about $5,000. Mm -hmm. how, how did you go about deciding how to price your different services? Was it something you just pulled out of the sky or <laughs> did you, you know, sort of look at industry benchmarks or, mm -hmm. you know, was it an iterative process where you, you tried certain price points and then landed uh, where you are now? What, what did that process look like? Mm, this is such a good question because it took a while and my prices started out super low. Like I started mm -hmm. out doing like $300 logos for people, which at the time felt like great money until sure. I realized like how much work really goes in. Um, and what it was, was that during my first year, like I said, I was working with teeny tiny clients and I see that as like where I was testing, I was learning. And so those people were getting a really low price because they were getting an amateur, you know, and so they were getting what they paid for. There was a lot of experimentation and it's like, we're in sure. this together. And that's how I built my portfolio. But I started getting to a point where people were saying yes way too often, where I would get on a call and people were like, oh, that's how much it costs. And at this time, I think I had upped it to like $700. They're like, yeah, sure, do it. Like, you know, and I started to realize I was like, okay, like, I'm closing these sales. It feels great. But then I started to talk to other entrepreneurs and things like that. And they're like, you know, if you're closing 100% of the sales, it might be that your prices are too low. And sure. while this was happening, I was getting overstretched. That's when I hired my first person. Shout out to Anjay. He is like my right hand man. It like completely saved me in a time that I was drowning in client work. Um, mm -hmm. But people were saying like, you know, you shouldn't be closing 100% of the sales. You're going to get burnt out in order to continue to like cover the volume of work you're doing. The quality is going to start to slip. And like, it just like, it also price tells a story, right? And so sure. if something is way cheaper than it should be in a way, like we start to like skew what the value is in our head. And now again, like there's so many cool things that I noticed intuitively that now I know the theory behind. And this is like, there's like a price value proxy that human beings use where again, we make so many decisions throughout the day. And so there's all sorts of things that we call in psychology heuristics where human beings will just like, you know, use use different proxies to understand complicated problems quickly. And one of these mm -hmm. things is prices. And so if we see something that is expensive, we automatically feel like, okay, it must be better because it would be, again, too hard for us to study things. And so usually we go for somewhere in the middle, right? In grocery stores, we're like, I'm not going to get the cheapest thing, but also the most expensive thing seems a little bit too much. And so I'm going to go somewhere mm -hmm. in the middle unless money is no object to you. And so what I did once I realized like, okay, my prices are too low and I'm burning out and this is a mess is I actually started doubling my prices until everyone started saying no. And that okay. was a really hard process for me. I had to do it all. I think it was in year 2021. I called like I had a word of the year and my word of that year was audacity. And mm -hmm. I was just like, I'm just going to have the audacity to just double my prices. Everyone's still saying yes, double them again. Everyone's still saying yes, double them again. And I went until I was not booking clients anymore. And then I stopped and I said, okay, I'm going to keep my prices here because I'm not backing down, but I'm going to find the people who can afford those prices rather than, you know, just like lowering and shrinking myself. 
Now, all sorry, I have one more thing that I promise I'll let you talk. I was going to say, now, all this to say, we are flexible and we definitely price the client, not always the work. And so there is, you know, a bottom level where we wouldn't go lower than that. But mm-hmm. if it's a mom and pop shop, we are not going to expect them to have the same budgets as if Chanel approached us. And I think that's absolutely fair because it's going to require a whole different level of responsibility to do work for these giant businesses. And the consequences are much greater if anything slips than working for a small business. So our prices do slide depending on who's talking to us. No, I love that. I think, you know, to your point, just having the uh, audacity um, (laughs) to, 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 to keep pricing until you get to a point where you could potentially lose business, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but but remaining steadfast in that. And I think that's a nice seg- segue into my next question, which is, you know, for anyone just getting started in business who perhaps has a modest budget, like you just mentioned, like mm-hmm. mom and pop stores, mm-hmm. how can they go about, you know, designing an impactful brand without necessarily breaking the bank? So whether it's through, you know, a design studio uh, such as yours or just even on their own. Mm, yeah. Um, there's like a few different ways of doing this. And so... I would say that the first is DIY and I have a very specific strategy that I recommend to people when they do come talk to us and they're like, these prices, we can't afford it. I'm like, Hey, you know, there's like different tiers for this. If your budget is like, you know, super low, then I call it the little black dress branding. And every woman has a little black dress where it's like, Oh, I could wear this to any event, any occasion. And it kind of works. Cause it's like, somewhere in between formal and casual where it just works, right? And I think that you could treat branding in a similar way. And so this is where I suggest to people, hey, maybe don't go crazy with the fonts and the colors and trying to make your own logo that's going to look really discount. But instead, hey, like even if it means going on Word document and typing up your business name in a beautiful sans serif font that's absolutely timeless and just Mm -hmm. screenshotting that, that's a better place to start where you have some type of brand identity that is subdued until you get to the point where you can afford to have somebody work on it. And, you know, for a little bit past that point, you have some budget, but not, you know, studio budget like we do, then that's when I say go for freelancers. So go for the Tosins of three years ago that are just starting out and they're experimenting. Be ready that you're not going to get the same level of professionalism as if you're to go with somebody who's more established. But when you have a lower budget, that's a great time to give those people an opportunity to show the world what they've got and what they're made of. And so I always suggest, hey, like there's so many freelancers, I can recommend other people who their prices are so much lower. And if you mm-hmm. can get them in the like first year before they, they probably up their prices because, you know, they deserve to after a point, then that's a great point for you. And honestly, I'm like on the low mid price range when it comes to design. There are studios and agencies that they won't even talk to people unless they are like talking six figure budgets. And so, oh you know, goodness. it keeps it keeps going and going and going depending on the size of your business. Yeah. So so you mentioned referring, um, you know, potential clients to freelancers and earlier you had talked about, you know, if there is some design work that a client needs that that um, you know, you may not necessarily feel that you can deliver on or you're not the right uh, studio for mm-hmm. is is this something that's common within the industry where you refer um, clients to to other service providers is that something that's reciprocated just generally in in the industry or is this specific to you no absolutely I think that um, that is one nice thing about the creative industry is that we do refer each other a lot because no one okay. person can have all the skills in the world. And so it's very common for people to yeah, either refer out to each other, knowing that it's like, hey, like even if I had a project too big, which has never actually happened because we would just, we would take it and we'd figure out a way to get it done because <laughs> mm-hmm. we have that gusto. But even if we had a project that was too big, like I would probably just refer them up to somebody that I look up to. And then lots of times, it, most of the time it goes the other way around where it's like, this is too little for us, but here's a bunch of great people just starting out. I will say okay. something else that's specific to the branding industry that's common is subcontracting. And so lots of times, um, maybe Pentagram or Design Studio, which are these gigantic branding firms who, again, probably like hundreds of thousands, if not millions, to get them to do your branding. Um, they will be approached by these giant businesses. They're getting way more work than they can handle, or maybe they're just 
they have a specific aesthetic that they want to go for is that some of these younger and upcoming studios execute better than them and they'll subcontract a lot of things out to people like my size. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that's how that's a really good way too for anybody who's in the creative industry to be able to get like bigger brands onto your client roster is to make relationships with people with bigger studios and they'll subcontract out. And that's stuff that we do as well. No, I love that. I think that that whole idea of scratch my back and I'll scratch yours mm-hmm. is is it goes a long way, right? Mm-hmm. Because to your point, you know, if you find yourself inundated with work and you can't necessarily deliver on it, if pass it on to someone else, maybe the next time it's mm-hmm. it's coming back your way. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, similar to your business, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's obviously evolved over the last three years. How would you say that you have personally evolved or grown as an individual um, since the inception of your business, right? So. Would you say that you're the same Tosin you were in 2020 versus who you are today? Absolutely not. I think that word that we used earlier of audacity, that's something that Mm -hmm. has changed. I went from feeling like, wow, like I can't believe people will pay me to do what I do to feeling like very honored still, but very capable of what I'm doing. And I think Mm -hmm. that came with leadership as well. When it's like, when I started hiring people on and when I started to need to lead calls and guide people in what they're doing, there was almost no choice but to feel confident because if I seem, you know, wavy (laughs) about what we're doing, then the whole team is going to be wavy. And so I have grown so much in my confidence and so much in my ability as well. I've gotten like just so much better when I look at my old projects. I think that they were like pretty good. Like some of them are still in my portfolio, but I'm just like, oh, like I've gotten so much better at designing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, there's something to be said about the confidence that, um, you know, just being thrown into the deep end breeds. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you mentioned leadership. What is what is it like um, being sort of at the helm of running a, a design studio and you have people working for you? Like, how do you um, how do you or how have you sort of shared your vision with them and how have they bought into that vision? And, you know, how do you really empower them to kind of pull forward Um, sort of in line with where you want to take the company? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, the first step is really intentional hiring. And so Mm -hmm. I am definitely a person who is slow to hire and quick to fire. If somebody is not working out after a few months, I'm like, let's cut this, you know, before (laughs) this gets more painful. And so I find it really important to have that really good personality match. And it's not necessarily like, you know, people use this word like cultural fit, like pretty much you need to just assimilate to our agency's culture. We're not really like that. It's like, are you bringing something that is of value to us or is going to drive us in the way that we want to go? And so be your full self and bring your full self, but that full self needs to jive and resonate and gel with the rest of the team. And so it all starts with hiring for me. I'm very intentional about that. And then I also make sure that I'm hiring people who feel really motivated and passionate about their specific craft and building the studio. So in a similar way as I want clients who really connect with me personally and my story, it's the same as people who work with me. I want them to care about me. I want us to be like friends, you know, to a level (laughs) like where it's still appropriate, but I want us to be friendly with each other and I want them to care about me. So it's not just like, oh, like I'm just billing my boss and like, she's just this person. Like, it's like, no, this is like (laughs) Tosin and like, we want this, like we all want this to grow and we're all coming with her, (laughs) you know, where lots of times I think like if I get to a point and one of my people surpasses me, like I'm going to champion them too and be like, I'm so proud to be a part of their story. But because of that attitude that I bring, lots of them are like, I would never do that. Like, I literally just want to go up to the top with you. Like, let's let's build this thing. And so we all feel really like individual entrepreneurs all working under the same house. And I just like happen to be like the mascot, you know, (laughs) that's that's awesome. How how many employees do you have total? Three right now. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. So. Um, you know, one of the things that I like to ask guests who come on the show, and I usually do this earlier on in the show, but I'm, I'm curious to hear what being an entrepreneur means to you, right? But in your case, specifically a Black woman entrepreneur, what, is, what does that mean to you? Hmm. To me, it means so much because we have like these these really clear divisions in class and socioeconomic standing where 
you either are a person who works for money or you're a person who has people work for you and then you get mm -hmm. money. And for me, being an entrepreneur is kind of like starting to push and like ride that line. You know, there's there's ethical question marks about, you know, passing over that line in the city and, and on the backs and the labors of other people collecting your checks. But when you're in this spot as a Black woman, you're able to not only empower other people, like those creatives I just talked about, to be able to um, do something and then you're able to make a difference and pay them living late wages and be really fair mm -hmm. and care about their life and and platform them and show them and things like that like I find that that's really powerful like having black women in positions and having a seat at a table like that but then also I myself am able to kind of escape that rat race <laughs> that it feels like we're all a part of where we work sure. this nine to five we get paid just enough to keep on living long enough to work the nine to five for a little bit longer and there's no like income cap to what I'm doing while if I went and worked at a, you know, traditional architecture firm, you could be able to make a lot of money, but it's going to stop somewhere. And sure. the lack of income cap for me is just so exciting because I'm like, wow, like I want to achieve well enough that I can bring other people up with me. But the thing is, in order for me to make a difference and again, bring other people up with me and hire people who might not be looked at usually and put other um, minority groups in high places, I need to get there first so that like someone's got to throw the rope down, like someone's yeah. got to do it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that makes complete sense. Um, any, any notable regrets or things that you wish you would have done differently up until this point that you can share? Yeah, like so many. I've made so many oopsies and mistakes. There are, I would say for the most part, there's moments where I said yes to things that I wish I hadn't, like saying yes to projects and clients that I felt questionable about, but because I was fearful in that moment or feeling like, oh, I don't know when the next project's going to come around. Um, like, you know, I would do it and then it would turn out badly for everyone or just be like such a stressful situation. And even though it like looks beautiful in the end, it's like, wow, that probably shaved a year or two off sure. my life. That would be, <laughs> that would be a regret. Um, Try to think of something that like wasted me a lot. Of, I've wasted a lot of money. I think that like there's been hiring decisions that it's like, wow, that was just so much money down the drain. But it's it's difficult for me to regret these things because I'm like, there's no other way that I would have learned sure. the lessons other than going through them. So there's lots of things that I would go back and do differently if I had the knowledge I had now, but then I wouldn't have the knowledge. So it's kind of like, okay, well, this is just the process. Sucks in the moment. I'm sad for a day or two and then I keep it moving. Yeah, almost like a baptism by fire. Yeah, exactly. Um, so as we as we get ready to close up here, I'm curious, what what's in the foreseeable future for you and your business? Like, what do you see, um, you know, for yourself and your business, let's just say in the next three to five years? Mm, yeah. Um, right now, we've been playing a lot and moving a lot more into like the animation space, just like the mm -hmm. current landscape of how everything's going um we find that to be really important to have like moving picture and so we've been experimenting a lot with that and figuring out how to make our graphics dance essentially um and so that's like something on the creative side and i think that over the next three to five years we're just thinking of scaling but not you know a crazy amount like i really like our tight-knit team i think that i would probably cap it at like 10 maybe for the foreseeable future maybe i would grow past that later on and just continuing to get um bigger and better clients and move into working on more campaigns rather than branding from the ground up all the time which is so much okay. fun for us but um usually the bigger clients are not needing that anyway so we're experimenting with campaigns more exciting mm -hmm. so you know, for anyone listening who might be toying with the idea of venturing out and starting their own business, mm -hmm. um, do you have one single piece of advice that you could share with them, um, you know, to either how they either how they can go about doing that, starting their own business or which potential pitfalls to avoid or look out for? Yeah, I would say that when starting a business, what there's this really corny adage but it's true where they say um luck is where opportunity meets preparation i don't know who said yes. that but i think that that's very very true like i said earlier my story has a lot of serendipitous moments and like 
happy to talk. Like I talk to people on the phone all the time who are like, I want to start a branding agency. How did yours happen? And they're like, oh, well, you can't orchestrate some of these things. They just kind of boosted you. And I'm like, absolutely Mm -hmm. true. But everyone has those boosts. And I read memoirs and I listen to stories and things like that of people I look up to like it's my job. And there absolutely is those moments for everyone where it's like, okay, well, you can't replicate that. It just happened. But the thing is, you have to be prepared for those moments. You have to make sure that like, when eyes are on you that your work your stuff your product is really 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 good and that you have the systems in place so that like if you get this giant opportunity you can actually handle it and make it happen um and so for me it's like being prepared for those moments and then riding those waves to their full extent and not expecting the same thing to happen next week because it may but most of the times like these things happen once every few years and so getting ready to like sustain those little lifts of growth um and then for accidents i would say just um being really patient and not trying to build faster than you can and so you, you know, like I'm all for just starting messy and getting into it and then Mm -hmm. perfecting as you go. But that being said, don't pour in thousands and thousands of dollars investment into something that you haven't tested yet. Don't go hiring 18 employees if you don't know if you can afford that and if you don't have like like, uh, capital to run it even if you don't make a sale for a few months you know it's these mistakes that people make where it's like maybe they got one lucky break and one opportunity and then they build this whole tower and then nobody comes and I I just think that being slow and steady and patient is the best way to build a sustainable business no I I love that advice um and I think the other thing is also you know a a common thing that we also see is that people are fearful Mm. right there's there's a bit of a an aversion to taking risks sometimes Mm. Um, I, I can't remember who said this. It might've been a friend of mine that I heard it from. I don't even know if it was their original quote, but, mm. um, it was scared money doesn't make money. Mm. Right. <laughs> Maybe not necessarily appropriate for this conversation, but mm. it's, it's just, you know, you have to be willing to take a risk and take a chance on mm-hmm. yourself, right. Mm-hmm. Bet on yourself because if you, if you can't, um, you know, bet on yourself, it, it's going to be hard to get other people to do so. Right. So, Absolutely. you know, to the, to the extent that you have that innate confidence in you or, or find a way to find that confidence to move forward, I think um, mm. will definitely take you a long way. Tosin, thank you so much. This has been uh, a great conversation. I've really enjoyed uh, sort of talking to you and and learning more about who you are, what it is you do. Mm. I really appreciate you being on the show. Um, so for anyone listening who wants to, um, you know, connect with you or check out what, the, what it is that you do, where can they find you? Yeah, I would just point everyone to our site. It's oluatosin.net spelled o-l-u-w-a-t-o-s-i-n.net and from there you know there's all the socials and things like that but everywhere we're just atelier oluatosin fantastic mm-hmm. thank you once again for being on the show truly appreciate it thank you Tosin. thank you for having me this was great all right take care bye-bye <laughs>